do a little Good afternoon. It's a bit unusual to see you all here at 3.30 in the afternoon, um, but it is lovely to see you here on this cold, wintry day, which has come very, very quickly, and we all want to get home before it gets dark, I know. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Catherine Favell, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here to the library this afternoon. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we're now very, very privileged to call our own home. I'm also very grateful for our generous donors, because two years ago we sought your help to raise funds to research, preserve and improve access to Bessie Rishbeth's papers. Now, that appeal kind of knocked my socks off, really, because we had 400 donors who helped us raise $160,000. And in the process, they told us, shared with us some amazing personal stories about their own experiences with mothers, grandmothers, aunts who had been suffragettes themselves or had been associated with the early feminist movements in Australia. One memorably wrote to us that if he hadn't donated, the spirit of his mother would have been incredibly cross. <laughs> All her training would have been wasted. What we uncovered through the process of the work that that appeal made possible has inspired the exhibition Deeds Not Words, which was opened on the 6th of February with a jubilant evening of food, of course, wine, even better, but great, wonderful conversation as we marked the centenary of the passing into law of the Representation of the People Act, which extended voting rights to some women and all men over the age of 21 for the first time in the United Kingdom. This afternoon, I'm delighted to introduce to you Dr Beatrice Fijon, who was the curator of Deeds Not Words, and who really inspired all the work that came after um, her Harold White Fellowship in 2011. Beatrice opened up Bessie Rishbeth's collection to all of us, showed us what amazing things were hidden in those boxes that sit in, on the manuscript shelves, and um, led us to the appeal, to the preservation work, and to the exhibition. Please join me in welcoming, welcoming Beatrice Bichon. Good afternoon. It's good to see so many faces. Great. Um, first, I'd like to thank the, um, the National Library, this wonderful Canberra institution that made this exhibition possible. I especially want to thank um, women and men within the library uh, for whom women's rights matter. Staff in preservation have done amazing work and they've got yeah, wonderful work with the fragile material from the manuscripts collection. And the designs, for those of you who've already seen the, uh, the exhibition, the design shows the objects at their best. It's been very rewarding to work with um, staff. I would say with women especially, most of them were women. And women who um, understand the significance of making these things visible and who are aware of the politics involved. Right, I'm going to start with a quotation by um, British suffragette Teresa Billington Grieg. This is a work that is waiting for us by voice and pen to produce the change of spirit in men and women which will register itself in legislation and which will make for better condition in areas that legislation cannot reach. So this was published in um, uh, 1911, and Teresa um, Billington Griggs' vision encapsulates Bessie Rishbeth, in fact. Um, while Bessie Rishbeth was convinced that, and I quote her, womanhood suffrage had proved the greatest force for women's progress. At the same time, she asserted that political citizenship could not be achieved by the vote only. For her, as well as for many uh, suffrage campaigners like um, Billington Grieg, the vote was a necessary stepping stone, but long-term advocacy 
was required to bring about and actualize deeper and broader changes. So this is what Rishbeth did the whole life, in fact. She was one of the founders of the Australian Federation of Women Voters and its longtime president. And she was all her life an advocate for inequality uh, of rights between men and women. The exhibition downstairs in, um, in the Treasures Gallery celebrates, celebrates Bessie Rishbeth. It also celebrates, as Catherine was saying, the campaign for um, women's suffrage. In fact, the, the centenary of women's suffrage in Britain, which gave the right to vote to um, a bit more than 8 million women, was about 40% of the uh, female population at the time. We have this exhibition here thanks to Bessie Richbeth and thanks to the time she spent in Britain, especially in London in 1913, when she was travelling with her husband. At the time, 1913, Britain and London was abuzz with uh, the campaign for women's suffrage. The hardship of the campaign, the charisma, the energy of um, the campaigners clearly marked her. In her notes and correspondence, she constantly refers to this founding moment of women's history and its trailblazers. The campaign for women's suffrage in Britain being for her the centerpiece of the struggle for women's rights more globally. So from 1913 until she died in 1967, she collected material um, on the suffrage uh, movement and she formed what she called her exhibit. And for her, it was a way, and I'm quoting her, it was a way of paying a tribute to this important milestone in human history. In fact, she had prepared this exhibit and she had cre created curatorial labels. And for those of, of you who have seen the exhibition already, have used three of them. I have done downstairs what she wanted to do all her life. That is, exhibit these shards of memory that would bear witness to the scale and the intensity of the movement. And to show, in fact, what it took to turn the battleship. To, um, to acknowledge the citizenship of women after decades of campaigning. The exhibition downstairs is only a portion of Rishbeth's archive. Like all archives, there are gaps and mistakes and also surprises. One of the pitfalls of research is that archives do not always tell the truth. And Rishbeth's is no exception. As she described it, it is indeed a mixed pie when you open all the boxes. Memorabilia, objects, photographs, postcards, pamphlets, plays, music scores, collages, press cuttings, etc. She remained a witness of the campaign when she was in London. She never got involved in the fight, unlike other Australian women who were there. And this probably accounts for her errors in dating and naming. Her archives is like a mosaic, and the history of the movement needs constructing when you open the boxes. Some objects exhibited in the treasures gallery downstairs are extremely moving when you unpack the uh, stories behind them. Some objects exhibited in the Treasures Gallery, um, um, here, are, here are a few of them. So a prison brooch awarded to um, a suffragette when she came out of jail in 1908. And this brooch was given to her as uh, a recognition of her sacrifice for the cause. A badge worn by a suffragette speaker a purple, white, and green sash worn a long white dress during a march. These three items belonged to Louis Cullen, a suffragette who migrated to Australia. And this photograph is downstairs in the exhibition, and she's here as an old woman in Australia wearing her speaker's badge and her sash. There's also a hunger strike medal who belonged to a famous working class uh, woman, Letitia Withall. She was force-fed in prison. Next to it, you'll see a letter 
um, that she wrote to Rishbeth in 1960, I think, to explain how she should read the medal. Uh, she also signed with her alias, Leslie Hall. A lot of suffragettes had aliases. It was a way of um, uh, not being recognized by the police. Also, sometimes they didn't want to shame their husbands or their families, so they used their aliases. And i tell you another story of an alias after the talk when we go downstairs. So through this object, you see that Rishbeth entered history through individual stories, in fact. But she also stressed the uh, significance of, um, and the stress, stress, strength sorry, of collective action. And I have wanted to frame this exhibition like this, to give a sense of the individual and of the collective. When I first started researching the, um, this archive as a Howard White Fellow here in 2011, and I was trying to piece things together, there were interesting moments when I could make connections that I think uh, Rishbeth was not aware of. Just one example. And this, um, I've kept this um, very fragile and very poor condition um, um, document. I, would, I want you to have this in mind when you go downstairs after that. It will give you an idea of the kind of work that preservation staff have done. Just incredible the state it was in the first time I took it out of a box. So the human letters, these two women were called, called themselves human letters. They realized, suffragette realized that they could pose themselves. So they decided to bring a message to um, Prime Minister Asquith to Downing Street, and they um, delivered these letters. And of course, the Prime Minister refused the letter, told them, you're dead letters, you can't be delivered, return to sender. And I realized that these two women, one of them was actually um, the person who um, owned the uh, saucer and the plate that you'll see in the exhibition downstairs. But it was not very obvious because, it's, in fact, it's this, um, this plate and the saucer were given by a woman who was later in touch with, with Rithbus. So, and her, her name was really very tiny, uh, very poorly uh, handwritten. So it was a sort of, you know, this moment when you make connections in archive, it just makes your die sometimes. Regarding um, Rishbeth's archive, the bias of uh, her archives in, in fact reflects what fascinated her in the campaign and what has fascinated a lot of people until today. In fact, it is the militant side of the movement, the movement with its spectacular fights and its tactics of direct action. And this angle also ties in with historiography with the way the history of the movement was written until very recently. In fact, until the 1980s, so it's very recent, the movement's history had mostly been written from the perspective of the most radical um, campaigners, from the perspective of the most militant. And starting, of course, with their own narratives that started as early as, as 1918, in fact. So until the 1980s, historiography had left in the background, the work done by all those who campaigned more peacefully, the non-militants, called suffragists as opposed to suffragettes. In fact, they the suffragists, the non-militant, the peaceful one, constituted the overwhelming majority of the campaigners. They had a very democratic organization. Their main organization was called the NUWSS, the National Union of um, women uh, suffrage societies with figures like Millicent Garrett Fawcett as his leader, also, also Ray Stretchy, you might have heard of. So they appear, the non-militant movement appears in the archive. But imagine, you know, there was no spectacular action. So when you have in mind an exhibition, it's not visually rewarding to collect speeches, notes, or um, letters that they wrote to MPs. And the codes, I'm not going to have time to, take, to talk about the code of colors, but all these organizations have got, had, had a code of colors. This code of colors was, is very different from the one that has remained with us, the uh, white, purple, and green code. That was the code of the, um, of the, uh, the more militant. 
So now, a few essential facts regarding the British campaign that might go against the grain of a unified and homogeneous movement. So, of course, there was the divide between suffragists and suffragettes. But among suffragettes, some refused uh, direct action and refused violence. And they questioned the military organization of the Pankhurst-led um, movement, the WSPU. So um, in this picture, the, um, the main leader, the, the mother, Emmeline Pankhurst, is not actually there. But on the right, you have her two daughters, Sylvia first and Christabel. The woman in the middle was um, the treasurer of the, of the movement with a husband, and next to her is Annie Keeney, very famous, one of the few working class women who uh, became a leader. And on the left, Lady Constant uh, Linton, and one of the few ladies who were imprisoned and force-fed. And you've got her uh, prison notice downstairs in, uh, in the exhibition. So WSPU, Women's Social and Political Union, the main uh, radical militant movement. So unlike them, um, suffragists campaigned peacefully. They lobbied MPs and politicians, wrote articles, and along the years, they uh, gradually marched in the streets. Suffragists never stopped believing in the power of rational arguments and explanation. They condemned all forms of violence. Over the years, some women moved change camps some suffragists became suffragettes. Some suffragettes from 1912 and 13, you know, were fed up with the violence, so became a suffragists. Um, also, men and women very often belonged to different organizations at the same time, and they navigated between the sometimes very different agendas of, uh, of the organization. Just an example, downstairs, you, you might see, you must have seen already, there's a press cutting. And there are women with umbrellas um, with no vote, no tax on them. And in fact, these women were members of the Tax Resistant League, uh, founded by an Australian, in fact, Dora Montefiore. And these women didn't see why they should pay uh, taxes to a government for which they had no rights as, as, citizen, as citizen. Um Along the years, some anti-suffragists converted and became uh, suffragists. But something that sometimes we forget is that uh, suffragists and anti-suffragists crossed paths when they worked in charities and in um, philanthropic organization. There were many, many different organizations, um, societies of actresses, writers, um, academics, teachers, uh, men, some with religious affiliation. There were many interactions, in fact, between some of these groups. There were a lot of crisscrossing. I guess also, uh, like any militant organization and large-scale political campaign, disagreements and rifts were frequent. Power struggles and tyrannical leadership were not uncommon in the movement, often undermining the image of sisterhood people would like to imagine. So to go back to uh, my original quotation, the pen and the voice were indeed instruments of the fight for suffrage. The pen, pretty easy, you know, writing petition. First petition for women's suffrage was written in 1866, presented to parliament. Pamphlets were written, theoretical texts, newspapers, letters, plays, novels, poems, songs, speeches. Now the voice, so that's where things um, get a bit tricky. There was a kind of ventriloquism, in fact, uh, regarding female voices at the time. If you think about it, uh, in the early years of the 20th century, women were either talked about uh, by men, or their voices could be apprehended only in the text they wrote, you know, Wollstonecraft, uh, Sarah Grimke uh, in, in the States. So, with a few notable exceptions, um, the public voices of women were largely silent. It's important to remember, again, that um, at the beginning of the 20th century, speaking in public was a male domain. The male voice was rational, powerful, respectable, respected, the voice of authority. 
female voice was deemed frivolous, frivolous bubble even, trivial chatter, and dignified drivel. So the first women who spoke publicly, um, I think it was in the, in the States, in fact, in the, 18, in the 1830s, they were thrown rotten eggs, herrings, stones, shoes, all you can imagine. So from that perspective, the fight for women's suffrage marked a dramatic change in the way women occupied open spaces, where hitherto they had been so often invisible. Suffragists and suffragettes started using their voices in all sorts of ways. Imagine them giving speeches outside factories, getting up on a soapbox at street corners and ringing a bell to draw a crowd, or delivering speeches in strategic places in London. And don't underestimate the boldness and the courage of these women. Many suffragists refused to do that. Some were unprepared um, to exhibit their bodies as they saw it. And after all, Victorian propriety was still very much the rule. Just going to quote um, what um, a writer, Margaret Nevison, says about the first time she had courage enough uh, to, um, to give a speech in public. At first, I refused to speak outside at street corners. I could not overcome my Victorian prejudices. This seems so vulgar. And I would wince in front of the rudeness and the violence, the rotten eggs and the rubbish. I started in 1906 outside a gas factory in the south of London. And I still remember how terrorized I suddenly felt dizzy as I stood up on the cart and I heard the shouts and the mockery as men outside the factory gathered around us by hundreds. The suffragettes' more obstructive way to use their voices was to sneak into political meetings and shout and interrupt the speakers. Heckling politicians became a systematic tactic for suffragettes over the years. There is um, the famous example of the two suffragettes, Helen Fox and the Australian Muriel Matters. They are remembered to, um, and they liked to be remembered as the first two women to have spoken in Parliament in October 1908. In fact, at the time, women could, uh, could go into um, the House of Commons, but they could follow the, the debates only if they were uh, behind a, a grill. So they could hear, but nobody could see them. And of course, they didn't like that. So to protest against that, the two women padlocked themselves to the grill and shouted uh, votes for women. So it didn't take much time for the policemen to, um, to turn up. And the policemen had to remove the whole grill to get them away. This was the only way. Yeah, the, um, the, the way I've seen the, um, the, the, what they use, it was not a tiny padlock. It was actually a huge leather belt, very thick, with a huge chain. So there's no way they could you know, unchain them. So they had to take the whole grill away. So with this example, we see that making themselves heard went hand in hand with making themselves seen, moving from silent to being noisy, from being invisible to being visually present. Going out of the parlors into the street was part of their strategy to become as visible as possible, to perform in the public space what they were fighting for politically. So suffragette, in fact, turned the feminine body into a civic body. Women's suffrage, which was politically challenging for most people in the Edwardian period, also became visually challenging through the marches, the parades, processions in the streets of London. In fact, suffragettes created a spectacle, a spectacle that was carefully arranged, constructed, choreographed even. So you all have in mind these long processions in the streets of London. These women were impeccably dressed with their long white dresses and hats, demonstrating the absolute respectability of the cause they were fighting for. And this was also, I think, undoubtedly a, a response to the stereotype of the ugly viragos they were supposed to be. These two postcards are not part of the collection, but I thought they 
they, they're not many of them. There were not a lot of anti-suffragist postcards, but they're really worth uh, seeing. So both suffragists and suffragettes had been fighting with words for decades. But from 1905, after decades of peaceful campaigning, of numerous false, prom false promises by the government and politicians, the more ardent suffragettes felt that words and rational arguments were leading nowhere. The vote was still intangible. They felt that action was needed and hence the motto adopted by the WSPU, deeds not words, and hence the title of the exhibition. Suffragettes certainly knew how to have the cause make the headlines in the press, and they used it to keep a high public profile. Also have in mind that it was the time that uh, press photography was really uh, developing. So they understood perfectly that any kind of publicity was good publicity. So the human letters, imagine this happened the following day was on the headlines in the Daily Mirror. And so did um, a suffragette's attempt to, at defending herself with a whip. Uh, she had interrupted um, Lloyd, Lloyd George giving a speech in 1908. So, of course, the next day, she made the headlines and she became the woman with a whip uh, in the uh, front page of the Illustrated London News. Deputation to 10 Downing Street or Buckingham Palace, gatherings outside Parliament, marching, heckling politicians, interrupting meetings, resulted in massive arrest. Hundreds of them were arrested. Trials, imprisonments. From 1908, suffragettes in prison started hunger striking. And they wanted to be considered as political prisoners to have a better treatment. So as female bodies became a site of resistance, they also became a site of oppression. This famous photograph of Emmeline Pankhurst being lifted from the ground by a policeman exemplifies their struggle. It was May 1914, and she had just come to Buckingham Palace to present yet another petition to the king. In this photograph, in May 1914, uh, Pankhurst was extremely frail and weak as a result of a hunger striking in prison. And I think I've always thought that this photograph illustrates the disproportion of means engaged by the state to quell the revolt. It was very common for women demonstrating to be mishandled by policemen who offered absolutely no protection um, when men opposed to women's suffrage assorted them. Women were beaten, trampled to the ground, and frequently sexually assaulted. In a diary, a suffragette describes how one day a guy, a man, a man came up to her with a knife and slit her coat for, from chin to toe and, of course, revealed her underwear. On that day in Wales, like many other days, things had been really rough. Lloyd George uh, had come to his hometown to be awarded the town medal and he started giving a speech. As a liberal candidate, he was one of these, a liberal candidate, yeah, he wasn't one of these politicians who were uh, quite disingenu disingenuous, saying that they supported women's suffrage, but when it came to put um, the vote, um, they never did it. So um, they protested, women were assaulted, a woman even um, was thrown over a hedge. So this was the context in which Rishbeth arrived in London in 1913. Police repression had gone crescendo. Suffragette Emily Wilding Davidson had died in June while trying to grab the king's horse uh, at Epsom Derby, had become a martyr. And the forced feeding of prisoners had started a year earlier in 1912. They had started being force-fed through the mouth and through the nose. Just going to read one of the many uh, descriptions of what it felt like to be force-fed. The sensation is most painful. 
The drums of the ears seem to be bursting, and there is a horrible pain in the throat and the breast. The tube is pushed down 20 inches. I have to lie on the bed, pinned down by wardresses. One doctor stands up on a chair, holding the funnel at arm's length, so as to have the funnel end above the level. And then the other, other doctor, who is behind, forces the end up the nostrils. The after effects are a feeling of faintness, a sense of great pain in the diaphragm or breastbone, in the nose and the ears. The tube must go below the breastbone, though I cannot feel it below there. The violation of their bodies came close to rape, um, according to many descriptions. The way they were treated outraged the public. It outraged doctors and the clergy. George Bernard Shaw, who was um, a supporter of, of, um, of the cause and delivered great speeches, some of them really funny, called force feeding illegal. I'm quoting uh, Shaw in one of his speeches. He's addressing McKenna, who was the Home Secretary at the time. If not addressing him, talking about him. If he wants to break people's teeth and force their mouths open, if he wants to wound their lungs, if he wants to run the risk of killing them, if he wants to inflict what is unquestionably torture upon them, it is his business first to bring in a bill legalizing those operations, making torture legal. This is a poster that Rishbeth collected, the cat and mouse poster. The year is 1913, and um, um, a lot of suffragettes have been on hunger strike, thirst strike, some have stopped sleeping. And um, they're really in, um, in, in terrible states. And the government was afraid that one of them might die. And of course, the last thing they needed was a martyr. So very quickly, they introduced an act, uh, nicknamed the Cat and Mouse Act. So according to this act, when they realized that uh, a woman was too frail, too weak, and might die, she would be released temporarily to give her time to recover. So she would put on house arrest, and of course with um, policemen outside her door, and when she was fit enough, she would be packed back, she would be put back in prison to serve a sentence. Sometimes when you read uh, the reports, you know, some women were released for three days, put back in prison for half a day, because they were in such a appalling state that, you know, they were still as weak. A lot of them played hide and seek with the police and hence the cat and massacre. Some women never went back to, um, to prison. This um, poster, I mean, of course, was a propaganda poster, quite realistic in a way. You know, the, um, the, uh, the cat's fangs biting into uh, the woman's body. Just uh, very emblematic of the state violence deployed at the time. I find that this brings us to reflect on violence. And I'm going to raise some questions which are for all of us to answer. When I was writing my book on the suffrage movement, I often felt some sort of discomfort um, at the word violence or violent used to describe some of the suffragettes' uh, activism, as I felt they were the one who were hurt, and they were the one whose bodies were bruised and assaulted. So it's absolutely true that the suffragettes' militancy had escalated from 1911. The suffragettes had become outragettes, as they loved talking themselves, uh, calling themselves. So after attacking public buildings like railway stations, setting fires to churches, destroying the tea house at Kew Gardens, they started damaging private properties. They spat on policemen, they provoked them. They attacked places associated with male pleasures, golf courses, racetracks. They cut telegraph wires, poured acid in leather, acid in leather boxes, and smashed hundreds of uh, windows of West End stores in 1912. So what situation did we have here? 
on the one hand, institutionalized state violence, torture with the complicity of some doctors. On the other hand, uh, activist violence, um, insisting that the argument of the broken pain, that's how they called it, was the just and only response to the deafness and violence of the state, the just and only response. In one of her letters, Rishbeth makes it clear that she opposed violence in principle, but she felt that the state had left suffragettes no choice but to respond violently. Emmeline Pankhurst also argued that they were using violence reluctantly. Terminology, another kind of terminology is also interesting and triggers reflection. Scotland Yard, who had used a telecentric lens to spy on the suffragette, I think it was the first time they had been using that, the first time they had this sort of, a, this sort of camera. So Scotland Yard called them terrorists and subjected them to state surveillance. Similarly, more recently, suffragettes have also been regarded as terrorist or reformist terrorist by some historians. But of course today, the word terrorists or radicalized have become very loaded. I would like to finish with a very famous speech given by Emmeline Pankers in Hartford, Connecticut in November 1913. She had come to the States to raise funds for the cause. I mean, I won't have time to go into um, um, any personality, but they are certainly very interesting personalities. And Pankhurst was a, a, a cunning orator. She was ruthless, authoritarian, and she used seduction. Sometimes when you figure out all these, um, all these you, you feel it really fits the description of some of our politicians today. <laughs> she, she was autocratic. She was fighting for democracy. There was no democracy in, her, in the movement she was leading. But um, in this very long speech, uh, 30 pages, she presents herself as a soldier and explains that the British fight is a civil war and needs supporting. Now that is the outcome of our civil war. You won your freedom in America when you had the revolution by bloodshed, by sacrificing human life. You won the civil war by the sacrifice of human life when you decided to emancipate the Negro. You have left it to women in your, in your land. The men of all civilized countries have left it to women to work out their own salvation. That is the way in which we women of England are doing. Human life for us is sacred, but we say if any life is to be sacrificed, it should be ours. We won't do it ourselves, but we will put the enemy in the position where they will have to choose between giving us freedom or giving us death. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been listening, had the opportunity to listen to Beatrice a few times over the last few months, and I'm always surprised and dazzled and intrigued by the way she manages to bring the archive to life. And I think we heard a little bit of that researcher's um, journey at the beginning of Beatrice's presentation today before we got into the quite gory and terrifying Cat and Mouse Act, which is an image that I could quite happily never look at again. I'd love you all to have time to go down and look at the exhibition again, but before we do, if you have some questions, we've got Aaron and Claire with microphones, so pop up your hand and we'll get a microphone to you and um, we'll have a bit of a chat. Well, thanks for an interesting talk. Um, I'm interested in the slogan and the, the, the birth of it. Um, you gave you gave this in your talk, but I wondered if you could expand a bit. Who who had the idea of shifting gear at that moment? And um, it was you said the WSPU, so it, it was the the, the the radical side of the movement. Um, did it have any echoes elsewhere at the time, or did they they bring that they find that 
spoken from somewhere or is it completely created by the moment? Um, well, the slogan first, it was, I mean, a change of tactics. It was also an address to the government. You know, stop talking, act. Um, I can't really trace the origin of the slogan. I think Martin was here. You had mentioned that it might have a, a connection with an anarchist slogan, if you remember. It's something I've never managed to trace, in fact. But, um, so of course at the time there was the fight for women's suffrage in the States, but it just didn't compare. There was never any um, militancy in America as there, was, uh, as there was in Britain. It was really in Britain that there was this, you know, the, the height of militancy uh, that we, we, we saw in the pictures. So what happened, there was, um, I mean, they had been campaigning um, since the 1860s. And there were, you know, it was not the only campaign for reforms. There had been um, suffrage reforms for men. There had been um, Josephine Butler campaigning for the repeal of the Contagious Disease Act. All these women worked together. And you had all the, um, the chartists in the 1830s in the north of England. You know, the root is just there in the north of England, in Manchester. The Pankers were in Manchester. So it's all started in Manchester, trade unions, chartists, you know, all this agitation. 1832, the first reform um, bill, um, uh, suffrage reform. And, I mean, gradually it took momentum. And so these fights lasted, you know, for decades until 1903, where um, the movement moved to London and the family, Pankhurst, uh, three daughters, three suffragettes, and other, and other women, not only them, other women, decided that that was enough because, I mean, nothing was happening. The um, women's suffrage kept being talked about in Parliament. Um, cabinet members made promises, and it was never inscribed. People individually, MPs and some government members, supported suffrage, but it is an issue that was never uh, um, inscribed as such in a party. Right. So gradually, 1903, WSPU is created, and 1904 is dated as the beginning of militancy, when one of the daughters, Christabel Pankhurst, and Annie Keeney, the working class uh, woman who became a leader, spat on a policeman and to attract attention, and they were arrested, was chaos, and was um, arrested and put to prison. And then gradually it escalated. It really started escalating in 1908, when with the first, I mean, there were really massive arrests, and first hunger strike started, and then 11, 12, 12, the first force feeding, 1913 was pretty wild. I don't know if I've answered the, your question. Uh, if, I could just, if I could just make a comment, your parallel with terrorism, I think, is very apt. Um, they used, as far as I can tell from what you're saying, the government used state oppression to solve, if I may use that word, the problem of women and this bloody voting. Now, today, they use state oppression to solve the problem of discontented youth of Muslim background. They're all a bunch of terrorists. And, um, and terrorism today has just as many injustices. If we go back to rendition, Guantanamo Bay, there were still men there. Yesterday, a man was convicted of attempting a terrorist act or threatening a terrorist act. He got 12 years. He was just released from a psychiatric hospital the day before. A long psychiatric problem. He took drugs and he was on some psychedelic drug and he threatened the pilot with a speaker box. He said with a bomb, there was nothing in it. He got 12 years. What's changed? I have nothing to add. <laughs> uh, I was just wondering, when Richbeth was, was making the archive, how did she envisage it being housed? Was like a, a purpose-built um, museum that she had in mind, or...? You know, how, how, the, the labels, how, how is this going to be presented? In fact, I mean, there are two things. The collection in, um, in the 1920s, yeah, 20s in, in, in Britain, former suffragette decided to create what was 
uh, called the Suffragette Fellowship, still called the Suffragette Fellowship. And to be a member of the Suffragette Fellowship, you had to have been a prisoner. And it became a huge archive. It's still in the, in the, um, in the Museum of London. And I think Rishbeth had that in mind when she started collecting her material, doing something similar in, in Australia, in fact. And so she started collecting that, you know, as soon as, when she was in London, as soon as she came back to um, Australia until she died. She, so there was a lot of um, correspondence uh, between former suffragettes who were here and people in women in the, in the suffragette collection in London. And she wanted to, so she created what she called her exhibit and she wanted to, she wanted to have this material first exhibited in, in Perth. It's very difficult to find, I mean, I've really looked into it, very difficult to find any traces of anything. But more significantly, she decided that the, the collection could be housed in, in, uh, in a building in Canberra. And just a couple of weeks ago, I've just found that this, well, I, I knew that two blocks of land had been awarded to them, and the block of land were at Melbourne Avenue. So I've still got to uh, do a bit more research. But her idea was to have some kind of women's museum, in fact, where all this would be uh, exhibited and made accessible to students. It was very close to her, to her heart to have this used as, as, as history. For her, she calls it an epic struggle. She has been so, she was so marked by what she saw in England and the, the sort of energy it, it created. So the museum never happened, obviously. In Canberra it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was, um, in her letters, I mean, it's very sparse. There's, there are a lot of holes in the correspondence, but uh, it was really 51 for the Jubilee. There was a women's convection here in, in Canberra for the, um, the Jubilee of, uh, of the town. And um, I'm exploring that at the moment. So there was, at the time, talk about the that women's museum with senators. There were four women senators at the time, and they were the one charge of lobbying um, to, um, to get it. Did she reflect on um, the difference between Australia and Britain? Had women got the vote here, um, had the vote here, and Britain was more resistant to it? Yes, she reflects a little bit on it. She's quite critical of Australian women, um, saying they're not aware of what they have because they didn't have to fight for it. That was um, what she what keeps cropping up in uh, you know little footnotes and she doesn't talk much about it. It's more she's more focused on what happened in Britain. It was clearly very inspirational in terms of the energy. She was already a feminist. She was already a member of the Women's Service Guild at the time. So it, she was already a feminist. It's more the terms in, in terms of the energy and the strength and the charisma and what it what it took in fact, for these women to get the vote. This is such an interesting topic, really. It's so great. I was wondering if you could share your thoughts about um, the effectiveness of these two approaches. I mean, it seems like this is a dynamic in so many other contexts, the civil rights movement or the AIDS crisis, where you have kind of people going a more peaceful route and then people saying that's, that's not enough. Do you have any feelings about how um, this, this played out in England? Uh, well, I think there's a lot of debates about, you know, what if they hadn't become militant? What if there had been no violence? What would have happened? Um, I think, I mean, I'm a strong believer in the, in the, in the strength of collective action and I think it was, you know, it was not homogeneous at all as a movement. There was so many perspectives, and I think my view is that it is the, the sort of convergence of and the um, the accumulation of the of the of the um, of the um, of, of action, in fact, that finally got them to uh, to get the vote. But um, I mean, what is really interesting is that we re usually people remember this suffragette. They were really a minority. You know, the militant in 1913. There were a few hundreds, and you know they were despised and 
condemned by their all-time supporters. Keir Hardy, the, um, the Labour Party leader, had fi finally given up on them, you know, called him them, I know, um, I don't know, crazy or whatever. But um, I think it's difficult to know. Um, I mean, my view is that it is just the, um, the, um, the, the variety of the fight that finally get them to, uh, to win the vote. But also, I mean, it's interesting how very often, um, 1914, when the war broke out, the WSPU stopped all action overnight decided to contribute to the war effort. Within the suffragists, you know, there was a sort of split. Women like Millicent Fawcett, that you, you saw on the slide, um, wanted to contribute to the war effort. And she was appalled that in her movement, they could have been pacifists, right? So a new movement was created called the United uh, Suffragists, who campaigned during the whole war, still marching uh, in Hyde Park and lobbying and uh, and campaigning. So I don't know if I, there's no real answer, I think. And in the States, there was no, uh, it was very different in the States. And in the States, when Pankhurst and others went to the States, um, American women, um, the, mo the most um, peaceful ones, were very afraid that it might be contagious, that they would bring wrong models uh, in the fight. We'd like to just take the last question for the Ingrid and then you can all go down and explore the exhibition again for some of you, I suspect. Thank you very much. Now, I know that this is about the suffragettes, but I'm still wondering whether there is any connection at all with the Jesse Street archives and papers. Oh, there is some kind of connection, yeah. I mean, they... Rishbeth and Jesse Street knew each other, and they were both feminists, but they fell out. Rishbeth stopped wanting to talk to her because she found her too communist. So there's the obvious communist. The obvious connection is that they were, you know, working, uh, fighting for women's rights. And as I was saying, I think every bit helps when it comes to women's rights and any sort of rights. And on that note, I'll send you all downstairs. If you're free next Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock and you want to hear another story about the work of an amazing woman, we are launching the Daisy Bates Digital Archive. Um, so we'd love you all to join us here for that event. But could you thank, join me in thanking Beatrice Bijon for a fascinating afternoon and a great exhibition. And we'll see you downstairs in the gallery.